0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is that time again. And so I just wanted to give you an update, which is that I do... I have finally uh, had a chance, and by me, I mean my wonderful husband, uh, has had a chance to update the website. So you can go to evidencebasederrata.com, and so if you've missed an episode, you can find it there. Um, Hopefully most of them. There have been a couple of technical glitches, but anyways... I wanted to start out tonight by wishing you a belated Happy Women's Day. And so in that spirit, I will be highlighting the work of a particularly amazing woman. Um, but mostly tonight we're going to talk about microbes And that is because I wanted to talk about a series of interrelated stories that have been in the news lately. So I wanted to start first with a short discussion about the toughness of Earth's living microbes and how that affects our efforts to explore space. A recent announcement at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science describes microbes that have been recovered from inside of Mexico's Nica mine which features huge crystals of gypsum in the so-called cave of crystals and of course this always makes me think when something like this happens which it's called the cave of crystals I always think we need more poets in the sciences uh, to improve naming conventions Uh, so I am very much in favor of of uh, interdisciplinary (laughs) studies Um, and to have people uh, working together on these sorts of things instead of just uh, naming things the obvious. And so um, what they found was microbes that were in a state of stasis inside pockets of liquid within the crystals and they're suspected to have been dormant for thousands of years and the microbes are completely unique. Penelope Boston, director of the NASA Astrobiology Institute, suggests that they may actually be 10,000 to 50,000 years old. While active, they would have used chemosynthesis to survive in the cave where no sunlight can penetrate. Other people have made long-term claims for the antiquity of organisms that were still alive, but in this case, these organisms are all very extraordinary. They are not very closely related to anything in the known genetic databases, Boston told Jonathan Amos at BBC News. Much to my surprise we got things to grow. Boston told Sarah Napton at the Telegraph. It was laborious. We lost some of them. That's just the game. They've got needs we can't fulfill. Now, of course, this is only a preliminary report of their data. Um, The paper has not yet Been passed through peer review. Um, And so some suspect that it might have been contamination from other parts of the cave, but Boston insists that her team were cautious about contamination. We have also done genetic work and cultured the cave organisms that are alive now and exposed. And we see that some of those microbes are similar but not identical to those in the fluid inclusions. Now, Of course, one of the things that I want to talk about in the overview is of course, what all of these sorts of things about microbes, of which we'll talk about several more, have to do with space. And so this has been in the news as well, uh, that we've increasingly realized that it's it's really tough to create a truly sterile spaceship or probe, or satellite. Um, And so when we go to other planets or moons, we might actually be accidentally seeding them with Earth bacteria without realizing it. And so, in fact, NASA has not only an advisory committee, the Planetary Protection Advisory Committee, but an actual officer, the Planetary Protection officer who heads the planetary protection office. And that person is currently Dr. Catherine Cassie Conley. And in fact, there's actually an international treaty, the outer space treaty of 1967, which dictates that nations should make sure to avoid harmful contamination on objects in space. And so it says specifically in article nine, In part, states parties to the treaty shall pursue studies of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, and conduct exploration of them so as to avoid their harmful contamination and also adverse changes in the environment of the earth resulting from the introduction of extraterrestrial matter, and where necessary shall adopt appropriate measures for this purpose. And so... Connolly's job is just that, to prevent such contamination, either earth contamination of other worlds or other worlds contamination of earth. And so her mission was originally developed by the Committee on Space Research, which is part of the International Council for, of Science. And right now, her main concern is Mars, pretty obviously. Um, you know, there is an article that someone was referencing about her at one point where they were talking about how she's the person that when they uh, go towards something that looks interesting, she's the one who says, "Mm, nope, that looks like it might have life possibly there, so you have to go away from it. Um, And unfortunately, that's because the current rovers that are on Mars are not sterile, and so they could potentially really do um, some... Bad uh, contamination of anything that might actually show that there is life either still clinging on in Mars or life that has been there. Um, you know, if they were to die there and then we found their remains, it would totally muddle things up. And so soon, Europa will also be a concern because. We are, that is our next destination for a probe. Um, and so we're definitely going to go there, maybe some of the other moons of Jupiter. Um, and so again, they all need to be protected from contamination. And so right now, most of our satellites don't need this kind of important um, and rigorous, uh, decontamination before they go into space. Uh, generally as, um, NASA says, the, uh, advice for most satellites is simply don't crash into planets. Um, and, uh, if you're going to crash into a planet, it needs to be a planet like Jupiter where we're pretty sure there isn't any life. And if there is life, it's something that's so different from ours that our life is not going to, uh, be confused with it. Now, Conley notes, especially that I worry about lichen. (laughs) I worry about the stuff that grows on your roof. They basically eat rock and they breathe sunlight and there's rocks and sunlight on Mars. So it's not that, uh, impossible that we might bring these sorts, of, um, these sorts of organisms to Mars and actually contaminate it. And in fact, Europa, uh, which was on the minds of these scientists at the same AAAS meeting last month, um, the panel was actually called on the risks and benefits of astrobiological exploration of other worlds. It was organized by John Rummel of the SETI Institute and featured talks by Kevin Hand of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Penelope Boston, and Noreen Noonan, a biologist at the University of South Florida. And so this is actually the panel where Boston described her experience with the Mexican microbes. Part of the problem Noonan, uh, who previously served as chair of NASA's Planetary Protection Advisory Committee, explained is that humans are autonomous microbial growth distribution systems, (laughs) which basically means we're mobile, uh, uh, microbiota, basically, uh, we walk around and we leave our microbiota everywhere everywhere. She actually says, uh, she notes that the human body, quote, spews fountains of bacteria. And so therefore, despite clean rooms and other measures to decrease the amount of contamination by earthbound organisms, some bacteria are bound to survive if extreme cautions are not taken. And so summing up the problem, she told the audience... If you take a $2 billion rover to Mars to study the organic microbes you brought with you, that's not (laughs) cost-effective. So Hand, who is part of the team that is building the Europa Lander, told the journal Science that his team plans to build the Lander in a clean facility and then to bake out any possible microbes that have managed to survive in the clean room or to escape the bodies of the workers. Now, the last time a probe was baked to sterilize it was when we sent out the 1975 Viking missions to Mars. It probably costs about 10% more to design it like this, he says, but the cost is worth it. Whatever lands on the surface of Europa will have less than a 1 in 10,000 chance of contaminating its surface, he told the attendees. We have to protect Europa for Europans. And so, again, this is a big issue. We have many organisms on Earth that are highly resistant to being destroyed. For instance, we now have another discovery of how tardigrades, which are also called delightfully water bears or moss piglets, which was new to me and is now my favorite thing ever, (laughs) These are the tiny darlings of both the internet and science, um, and they pretty much can survive anything. (laughs) Um, If you somehow escaped knowing about tardigrades, uh, they are tiny aquatic animals that can live in either marine or freshwater environments, including areas that are merely damp and so They can live in moss, flowering plants, sand, and also in actual um, bodies of water. Now, most eat mosses or other um, uh, plant materials, but a few are even predatory carnivores. Um, And some actually eat other water bears. So they're definitely um, an animal. They're a tiny, 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 tiny animal, but they're an animal. And so... The most important thing about them, though, is, again, they can pretty much survive any hostile environment, environmental situation thrown at them. And in fact, a test by the European Space Agency back in 2008 showed that they could, for instance, survive the vacuum of space. (laughs) They had already subjected, people had already subjected tardigrades to intense pressure, um, some ridiculously large amount. I forgot to write it down, but... um, deeper than you would, more pressure than you would have even in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Um, and they were fine with that. Um, they've been subjected to huge doses of radiation, um, and basically years of desiccation, um, by various scientists. And so the ESA decided to, uh, Test whether or not they could survive space. So, they launched two species of dried tardigrades aboard a satellite that returned to space, uh, sorry, returned to Earth after 10 years of being in low Earth orbit. And so, when they were retrieved and rehydrated, many of the tardigrades were able to come back to life and reproduce. Some were damaged by the intense UV light, more than a thousand times stronger than when. On the surface of the planet, but those that were shielded from the worst of the UV light seemed little affected by the vacuum of space. And so um, the new result is that a team from Japan has sequenced the genome of the animal and found that a single protein dubbed DSUP, D S U P, for damage suppressor. Could be transferred into human cells and increase their radiation toleration. And in fact, it reduced the damage by X ray radiation by 40%, which is pretty impressive. And so, further, they found that the DSUP protein acts as a physical shield for the animal from radiation. Now, researchers had already found out that the tardigrades, when they are desiccated, basically become covered in a glass-like molecule. And so this is one of the main ways that they protect themselves from damage. And so these proteins are called intrinsically disordered proteins, or IDPs, and basically they create a form of bioglass, When wet, they are shapeless and highly flexible, hence intrinsically disordered. Um, But when they dry, they form the bioglass that protects the tardigrades from physical degradation. And so this new protein shows how they protect themselves, not only from physical degradation, but also from radiation. Tolerance against X-ray is thought to be a side product of the animal's adaptation to severe dehydration, says lead study author Tekikazu Kunieda, a molecular biologist at the University of Tokyo, the research into just how tardigrades can be so tough is being studied for its potential to affect medicine, crop science, and other fields where um, the ability to basically dry out and still be able to come back to life would be, you know, helpful. Or the ability to be able to withstand greater amounts of radiation. So you can think about crop resistance. Um, sorry, drought-resistant crops. You can think about medical science. One of the things that they suggested was um, that it could aid people who are having radiation treatments for cancer. There might be some way that they could adapt the molecules to either be a sort of. Um, uh artificial skin over the person so that it would protect their um, actual body from radiation. And, you know, those are just the sort of things that you can think of off the top of your head. So tardigrades are definitely pretty amazing and they have been... Uh, Pretty well studied because obviously we kind of want to know how they do all of these things so that we can then find ways to use that. And um, this is one of those really cool ways in which we can use um, science in order to create technologies that make the world better. Hooray! (laughs) So the next time you see a patch of damp moss, tip your hat to the mighty tardigrade. (laughs) Okay. And so now I want to talk about the discovery of the latest candidate for world's oldest fossil of a living organism. So an international team has announced that they've discovered traces of bacteria from at least 3.77 billion years ago, if not older. And it also lends weight to the emerging hypothesis that life began not in a quiet little pool on the surface of the planet, but rather deep below the sea in the area surrounding a thermal vent. And it also suggests that life started very early after the planet was formed, making the possibility that life has evolved on other planets more likely. And so the fossils were found on a beach in northwestern Quebec in a layer of quartz crystals. And so these were originally in an area that was a hydrothermal vent. And obviously, over the billions of years, um, through geological processes, have ended up on a beach in northwest Quebec. Um, So um, in case you don't know, a hydrothermal vent is an area of the seafloor where superheated water, which is rich in minerals and other dissolved solids... Um, pushes up from the seafloor and it creates a kind of chimney um, because these minerals basically um, precipitate out and they create these chimneys. And so um, they're often also referred to as black smokers um, because those mineral rich waters have a dark smoky quality to them when they first come out of the chimney. And so today when we go there and we Um, take submersibles there and have them uh, look around, uh, we find a huge diversity of life around them. And so that includes one of my favorite things there, which are these Beautiful giant tube worms um, I know that doesn 't sound amazing, but they really are a delightfully weird organism uh, they're uh, They have a symbiotic relationship it 's the worms with uh, microorganisms that uh, they have a symbiosis, and they 're really cool um, and I will definitely try and post some links to uh, pictures of these cool uh, worms and also other things around the uh, geothermal, um, the hydrothermal vents, sorry. Um, Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning that you can find Evidence-Based Radio throughout the week at facebook.com slash Evidence-Based Radio. And so I will definitely try and post some things there. Um, And if you want to listen to um, the shows, then that's Evidence-Based Errata. Um, okay. But anyways, let's get back to this really cool research. So it was led by University of College London scientists, Matthew Dodd and Dominic Papineau. And they were able to determine that the fossil's origin could not have been through non-biological prophecies, such as t- changes to temperature and pressure as the rock was buried. So they did this by using laser imaging and kind of figuring out that this was definitely something biological they found, what they found were tiny filaments and tubes that were most likely made by primitive bacteria. In fact, they actually even look like tiny tube worms. <laughs> so, um, it's pretty cool. So the fossils are preserved as hematite, um, and that is a, uh, iron rich, um, mineral. And so they think that they were probably, um, fixing iron in order to, um, in order to survive, so they were chemo um, synthetic that they um, were engaged in chemos chemosynthesis um, instead of um, using light photosynthesis, they use chemicals um, or And so they were also associated with apatite, which is actually a mineral, uh, and carbonate. And so that also gave them a clue because those particular minerals are often found near other fossilized remains of biological, um, of things that were once biological. So They note that we found the filaments and tubes inside centimeter-sized structures called concretions or nodules, as well as other tiny spheroidal structures called rosettes and granules, all of which we think are the products of putrefaction, explained Papineau in a statement. The structures are composed of the minerals expected to form from putrefaction and have been well documented throughout the geological record from the beginning until today. The fact we unearthed them from one of the oldest known rock formations suggests we've found direct evidence of one of Earth's oldest life forms. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Um, Now, of course, it will be years before it becomes settled science, whether or not these really are the remains um, of some of the oldest fossils from Earth's prehistory. However, the evidence is pretty compelling, and it gives us hope, um, again, that it might be fairly easy uh, to form life on a young planet. Um, And so hopefully that will give us a better chance when we go out into uh, at least the local solar system looking for microbial life because of course that's the most likely thing that we're going to find as far as life is microbes uh, as far as we can tell right now but who knows we might be really surprised i'm really looking forward to what they find on europa um I have definitely always been interested in what they might find on Europa, so we will have to see. But I think that we should take a moment to take a break and do some PSAs and um, a show promo or two, and then we're going to come back and talk about Penny Chisholm, Um, so hang on for just a moment
1: caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs.
0: Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S.
1: 9-Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and Newgrass music. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio. We're a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. The views and opinions expressed on WXOJLP are solely those of the original hosts and guests of their respective programs. These views and opinions do not necessarily represent those of Valley Free Radio Incorporated, its volunteers, or any other hosts, guests, or programs broadcasted on this station. If you would like to know more about Valley Free Radio, please visit us at valleyfreeradio.org.
0: This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at WRInstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, we are back. And um, before we go back to the show, I did want to make a note that Nerd Night is coming up on This coming Monday, the 13th. And so it will be a talk about Game of Thrones and music as a language, which is pretty cool for listeners to the radio. Um, So, yeah. And this week um, or this month, what they've been doing every month for the last several months, uh, based on certain Uh, events in the country is that they've been donating half of the proceeds to various uh, charities and organizations that could use some uh, money these days. And uh, this month, the 50% is going to the Northampton Arts Council. So that's pretty exciting as well. All right. So let us now get back to our uh, discussion of microbes. And so I want to segue now uh, into talking about a scientist profiled recently in the journal Science, and um, she studies marine microorganisms. Now, Penny Chisholm studies Prochlorococcus, a cyanobacterium that is responsible for up to 5% of global photosynthesis. It's also the smallest single-celled photosynthesizer in the ocean and occurs everywhere from the surface up to 200 meters or over 650 feet below where sunlight is barely able to reach. Now, Chisholm, for her part is a pioneer who has broken gender barriers. She's met with a U.S. president, debated the Dalai Lama, which is one of my favorite things, (laughs) and co-authored science-themed children's books, which is also very excellent. She even tried to get the hip-hop artist GZA to create a rap which included (laughs) Prochlorococcus, In one of the tracks on a CD, which was to be themed on the oceans. She's really driven to sell Prochlorococcus, said Allison Coe, Chisholm's longtime lab manager. She wants everyone else to be as passionate and to consider it as amazing as she thinks it is. And so, as Chisholm has has continued her upward trajectory in her career, so too has she helped pro uh become more widely recognized for its important role in the world's ecosystem. Now, she admits that she, like many women at the time, actually uh, started her career in higher education uh, and went to college in order to find a husband. Um, but luckily for all involved... A professor pushed her to pursue academics, and so she decided to pursue a Ph.D. at the State University of New York in Albany. And then from there, she actually went on to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is in San Diego. And frankly, she says she went there because there was more funding uh, for marine microbial ecology than there was for freshwater research. Now, in 1976, she was actually recruited by MIT to become the first microbiologist in their civil engineering department. They wanted to get some more uh, environmental uh, cred. (laughs) And so uh, she was asked to come. But she was so convinced that they would not inevitably accept her and that she would not get tenure, that she didn't even think about buying a house in the area for several years. But luckily for her, she did manage to fit in there and did manage to get tenure. And MIT is affiliated, uh, as you may know, with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And so this gave Chisholm a chance to do fieldwork on how microbes influence the ocean. And so early in her career, um, being able to study plankton was actually rather difficult, if not impossible, because most was too small to see with a light telescope. Chisholm and her first postdoc, Robert Olson, devised a way to use a flow cytometer to sieve seawater in order to locate new microbiota in the samples. Now, the flow cytometer used a laser to view and sort individual cells. Olson noticed a faint red fluorescing signal that was unexpected. And at first, they thought it was simply noise in the signal. However, it actually fluctuated based on the depth and temperature of the water samples, suggesting that it was actually something living in the water samples that was causing the signal. Now, Chisholm was very cautious. She did not want to uh, rush out and say that they had found something new. And so um, first she had collaborators photograph the cells with an electron microscope, which obviously you can get much greater um, resolution with an electron microscope to see what you really have. Um, And she also waited until another group had traced the signal to the microbes chlorophyll and other pigments before she published her paper with Olson in 1988 announcing the discovery of a new microbe in seawater. Now, by 1992, they had given it the name Prochlorococcus, which means, and this is lovely, primitive green berry. And by that time, they had actually realized that Others had seen the microbe, but they hadn't recognized that it was a new species. We were in the right place at the right time with the right instruments to have these cells say who they were, she notes. Now, unfortunately, Prochlorococcus proved pretty hard to work with in the lab, and it's still pretty hard to work with in the lab. Um, It took several years, and it wasn't until 1990 um, that it could be grown in a test tube, And then it took another 10 years before it could be sustained in pure cultures, which are necessary for a lot of scientific research. And in fact, even to this day, it resists genetic manipulation, which is the standard for experimentation on most living organisms. Now, just as Chisholm was beginning to devote her energies to unlocking the secrets of Prochlorococcus, she was pulled into a very different sphere, Nancy Hopkins, a cancer researcher at MIT who was an acquaintance, asked her to support her push to fight the discrimination she saw in lab spaces, pay, and support for female faculty. Though never having previously considered herself a particular crusader for women's rights um, or anything like that, uh, she signed on to a letter asking for an investigation along with all but one of her female uh, colleagues. Now, MIT, to its credit, did conduct an investigation, and the investigation did uh, create a report that uh, made specific recommendations. And apparently, MIT really did actually embrace this. Um, and so, when news of the investigation and the subsequent changes at MIT Um, that they had embraced came out in 1999, she notes that it was a shot heard around the world. It became a big movement. Further, she says, looking back at the way things were when I first got here and how things are now, there's a tremendous shift. And so again, she's been a real pioneer um, and really helped people, um, helped women to feel more comfortable to get um, better equality at this really important and prestigious university um, and uh, institute. And so after this, (laughs) she went back to her work with with Prochlorococcus. And so over the years, and as technologies have improved, including sequencing genomes from single cells... Uh, which actually was uh, pioneered by Chisholm's lab with uh, marine microbes. For a long time, they thought there were basically five different strains of the microbe, which basically lived in different uh, layers or um, micro... um, uh, And basically in different parts of the ocean. Uh, But as they were able to do more testing, they actually found that there were hundreds of distinctive strains. And each of them has more than a 100 distinctive genes. And so that's a huge amount of genetic diversity. And so there's so many things uh, going on there. And it's totally why it turns out that These little microbes are pretty much completely dominate most of the oceans. You can find them pretty much um, in any of the mid uh, latitudes of the ocean, Um, anywhere between sort of the, uh, sort of the cancers, the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, anything in between there, you can find them all over the place. And, um, so it was really, so they found that there was all this great diversity and so lots more things to, uh, to try and understand. And so her lab has continued to discover new things and revealed new understandings of the ocean. So for instance, Prochlorococcus plays an important role, um, in the carbon cycle. And so they are... A significant regulator of levels of CO2, which, despite what our current EPA director would have you believe, is in fact a significant greenhouse gas. Deep breath, everyone. Anyways, she has warned, though, um, that interfering artificially with these microbes, for instance, by seeding the ocean with iron to stimulate the growth of phytoplankton... um, is probably a bad idea due to the possibility of unforeseen circumstances. And especially given the fact that we really know pretty much nothing about the ocean biome as a whole, her caution seems warranted to me. This actually is what led her to the debate with the Dalai Lama, who suggested that they should Basically, just give it a try and see what happened. Um, And so they were on a panel together at MIT in 2012, where she basically said, no, don't do it. (laughs) And um, one of the things that I found most kind of um, compelling about her story is the fact that, like many women in the sciences especially, she still struggles with imposter syndrome. And so, in fact, when she was named an institute professor, one of only 13 such professors at MIT, she was shocked. She really didn't even believe that it could possibly be true. And despite her doubts, she keeps working, unwilling to retire at 68. I should probably be thinking about retiring, but I'm not, because Prochlorococcus is too darned interesting. Interesting. I'm really very grateful to have this organism in my life. And so, yeah, amazing woman. And this is really just the condensed version of the story. I tried to pull some of the highlights out of it, but it's a long um, story, which will be linked um, on the evidence-based errata page. Um, And so you can go and read the full article. I'll try to put it on Facebook as well. And um, I definitely think that, especially for uh, Women's um, History Month, for International Women's Day, this is definitely a person that you should know more about. Because not only is she amazing, but the thing that she studies is amazing. So, hooray! (laughs) Okay. So, now I want to do one more uh, little bit about microbes. And then we're going to turn to one of our... Happier subjects, uh, which is one of my personal favorites, birds. So let's let's power through this. <laughs> and so um, this is a subject that I talk about a lot. Um, it's probably one of my uh, most um, common nightmares, which is of course antibiotic resistance. So reports are coming out that bacteria that commonly cause urinary tract infections in women are becoming increasingly antibiotic resistant. And that's a huge, huge problem. Um, And so we really need to work on developing new antibiotics. And so this week, there is a, um, a paper out that states that Another candidate might be antimicrobial peptides derived from the blood of Komodo dragons. Now, one of the hallmarks of Komodo dragons is their lethal bite. Their saliva contains more than 50 species of bacteria. Prey bitten by a Komodo dragon, even if it survives the initial attack by the lizard, will almost certainly succumb to secondary infections brought on by the toxic cocktail of bacteria contained in their saliva. However, they can uh, survive it themselves. And so um, Komodo dragons are the largest living lizard and are the apex predators in their environment, in their environs, said George Mason University researcher Barney Bishop and his co-authors in the paper. They endure numerous strains of pathogenic bacteria in their saliva and recover from wounds inflicted by other dragons, reflecting the inherent robustness of their innate immune defense. And so the team focused their research on um, cationic antimicrobial peptides, or CAMPs. And so these are produced by almost all... Organisms as part of their immune system. Now, the researchers had actually previously isolated potentially uh, therapeutic camps from alligator blood, and they have a very similar sort of uh, ability to kind of shrug off infection, Um, so not surprising. And so, what they did was they decided to try the same technique and This is an approach called bioprospecting, um, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's basically poking around inside of organisms to see if they can find things that will be helpful. Um, And so they decided to test this theory on the dragon's blood. Uh, And so the technique employs hydrogel particles, which are negatively charged. And so they are able to capture the peptides, which are positively charged. And so once they examined what they had found, they were able to identify and sequence 48 potential camps using mass spectrometry. So in the paper, they write, the antimicrobial effectiveness of eight of these peptides was evaluated against Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Staphylococcus arens, with seven peptides exhibiting antimicrobial activity against both microbes and one only showing significant potency against P. aeruginosa. So there is still hope that new antibiotics can be developed. Um, And of course, part of this is that we really need to drum up support for this research. Um, And so we really have to make sure that we are able to uh, make strides in this important field uh, because a world without antibiotics is not one you want to live in. Trust me. Uh, luckily, the World Health Organization uh, is on it. (laughs) So they've put out a new list, uh, which they are aiming uh, to try and persuade the G20 countries uh, to develop a plan to bankroll basically pharmaceutical countries to seriously pursue the development of new drugs. And so Deborah McKenzie at New Scientist reports that researchers at the who, and at the University of Tübingen, Germany, pinpointed the most damaging families of drug-resistant bacteria based on criteria such as how often bacteria resist antibiotics, how many they resist, how often they kill, and the number of people affected. And part of this is because there is an unfortunate trend in the research currently, which is that basically people are developing drugs against really easy and common uh, microbes. But what we really need are uh, antibiotics that fight the tough ones that are hard to get a hold of and hard to research. Um, And so that's why we need a lot of support. Now, hopefully, this uh, will again help jumpstart research. All right. So, again, we've talked a lot about microbes, and so I did want to finish off tonight by talking about birds because birds are awesome. And <laughs> um, so, this first one, um, this first story, is a little bit, it's a little bit interesting. So, um, if you heard last week's guests. Um, Sam um, Redman. And if you didn't, you can hear that interview uh, on evidence-based errata. Um, He brought up an interesting idea. Well, he brought up many interesting ideas, but this one um, was about how we determine truth. And so it really resonated with me. Um, So for instance, a lot of things that we think we know haven't really been studied scientifically, and yet we assume they're true. And of course, there's an opposite of that, which is people, uh, researchers actually sometimes do studies to prove or disprove commonplace beliefs. And we often basically say, you know, oh, well, that's duh research. Um, but it's it's an important um, idea that to modern science, as we practice it, this is an important thing to do. You may think that hanging out in nature is good for your mental health, for instance, but until scientists actually measure stress levels of people, in and out of nature. In some ways, it's not really true. (laughs) So it's a little bit of a weird thing here. Um, And so, you know, obviously it's nice to have empirical proof for one's beliefs, but um, there was a great anecdote that someone um, recently Uh, noted, wherein um, there was sort of a a conference where people were, uh, scientists were reporting to Native Americans about research that they had done on the diet of their ancestors. And basically, they have this whole presentation and, you know, someone raises their hand and says, well, I could have told you they ate corn. (laughs) And so, you know, here's this cool isotopic you know, research that's been done and it basically says things that they already know doesn't really help the people who are there um, with anything. And knowing that for certain didn't change how they go about their lives and how they perceive it, because they already understood that that's what their ancestors did. And so of this is leading up to a new study that proves quote unquote that hanging out in places where you can watch birds or at least see nature especially uh, is good for your mental health <laughs> so daniel cox from the university of exeter along with his colleagues from the university of maryland the university of queensland and the british trust for ornithology surveyed the mental health of 263 participants from a range of ages incomes and ethnicities. All the participants lived within the urban limits of the so-called Cranfield Triangle, a region a region in southern England comprised comprising the three adjacent towns of Milton Keynes, Luton, and Bedford. And so what they found was what many of us take for granted, that time spent in nature or at least being able to see nature made people less stressed. Experiences of nature provide many mental health benefits, particularly for people living in urban areas. The natural characteristics of city residents' neighborhoods are likely to be crucial determinants of the daily nature nature dose that they receive, the report states. We demonstrated that of five neighborhood nature characteristics tested— vegetation cover and afternoon bird abundances were positively associated with a lower prevalence of depression, anxiety, and stress. And, um, you know, they found that it really didn't matter what kind of birds people saw. And in fact, people in general are kind of terrible <laughs> at distinguishing birds um, from one another unless they're actual birders and have actually, um, you know, made the effort to learn about birds. But, you know, it doesn't matter. They're birds. They're pretty. They're fun. Um, and so um, Dr. Cox notes that our study starts to unpick the role that some key components of nature play with our for our mental well-being. Birds around the home and nature in general show great promise in preventative health care, making cities healthier, happier places to live. Although the cause and drivers of poor mental health are diverse, this study suggests that even low levels of key components of neighborhood nature can be associated with better mental health, providing promise for preventative health approaches. And of course, anything that encourages more uh, nature in cities is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And of course, if you want to engage in some of this uh, hanging out with birds, remember that we have several uh, bird sanctuaries in our immediate area, uh, including Arcadia, which is run by the Audubon Society, and it's right here in uh, Northampton, right um, sort of on the uh, Northampton-East Hampton border. And also Amherst College has a large area that is a bird sanctuary. Um, so definitely plenty of birds around here to watch. Um, and so I just wanted to finish up with this interesting study about the idea of speciation in birds. And so um, Jeffrey Hill, an evolutionary ecologist at Auburn University, actually um, wrote a paper recently talking about sort of the interesting and um, fraught ways in which we think about speciation. So he notes that blue and gold-winged warblers are definitely different. Um, he uh, actually wrote this paper. I wanted to say this because it's this so cool. He wrote this paper in the fabulously named journal, The Auk ornithological advances um, and so he talks about how these two warblers are definitely different species as far as ornithologists are concerned but when you look at their nuclear dna you can't really tell the difference and so what he found was that it was their actual mitochondrial dna that was different and so he thinks that this could have been this could be a better way to sort of look at species is is there both to look both at their nuclear DNA and their mitochondrial DNA and see how it is different now, of course, much as with much in nature <coughs> excuse me, speciation is messy um and there are all different ways that it can be expressed, and so this is just another way of looking at it. Um, you know, taxonomists have debated forever about exactly where different creatures fit in the web of life but i just thought this was kind of neat to see where they have the same nuclear dna but two different kinds of mitochondrial dna all right that is all the time we have to talk about microbes and birds um so i will be back next week and stay tuned for civil politics